The fact that you are a Christian this morning must affect more than just you. Yes, Christianity is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That is true. It is not a religion that we work through a system where we don't really know our Savior. It is a relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But it is not a private relationship that we are called to have. We are called as Christians to be in community with one another. The Bible says so all over the place. Hebrews 10 says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And Galatians 6 goes on from there to say, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So if you are not part of the community of believers gathered together using the gifts that God has given you uniquely, helping bear each other's burdens and stirring up the best in each other to love and good works, well, then something is missing. Something's not right. And this is the topic that Jesus really begins to address in the next couple of chapters. The topic of community. Chapter 18 of Matthew is actually the fourth major discourse in the book of Matthew and is an extremely practical chapter of how Christians are to live and interact with each other as part of the gathered community of God. How we are to live together and function in community with one another, especially in the church. And the first thing we tackle as we unpack this very practical chapter, is the attitude of believers in relationship to one another, as we find in verse 1. This is, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? <laughs> By the way, remember back in uh, chapter 16, when we talked about Peter being, getting the keys to the kingdom, and on this rock I will build my church. We spend quite a, quite a deal of time unpacking that section. You know, this, this passage is a reminder of Peter was truly the one whom the church was built upon. Jesus didn't need to grab the child. He would have just grabbed Peter and said, this is your guy. You need to be like this guy. Just one more hint that that can't be the proper interpretation of that prior passage. So just another way how the Bible interprets the Bible if you pay attention to it. You don't need mountains of commentators or a very winsome pastor to explain the Bible to you. If you just pick this book up and start reading it for yourself, you'll put the pieces together in due time. We'll have some question marks perhaps penciled into the margins. I certainly certainly had a lot in my first Bible and... There's still some in there, but there's a lot less than there used to be. But they ask this question of Jesus, who is the greatest, assuming Jesus is going to pick one of them. Picking one of the disciples is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Perhaps in response to hearing about Jesus' death in the prior chapter, they start basically asking, who's going to take over one day once you're gone? Who's going to be the heir of this movement of God? Failing most obviously to realize 
2,000 years later, Jesus is still the head of the church. Ephesians 5 tells us as much. He's the head of the church. So don't let anyone ever tell you a pastor's the head of the church or a denominational body or anything like that. No. Same management for 2,000 years and counting. It's all about Christ. But more than that, asking who is the greatest is really to misunderstand the whole gospel, isn't it? I mean, asking who is the greatest is like if you, myself, and Olympic medal, gold medalist Michael Phelps got into a swimming contest across the Atlantic Ocean, seeing who can get across first. Now, let me ask you, if such a fictitious event were to take place, what would the headlines be the next day? Would it be, would it indicate who won the race? No, I'll tell you what it would read. Three people dead. That would be the headline. Doing Subtext, please don't do this. Doing something incredibly silly. No, nobody's going to care if who was technically first or who was furthest out there. If you're all dead, it misses the point. And likewise, the disciples needed to realize that asking who is the greatest is the same categorical mistake. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I mean, how laughable is our boasting in our abilities or asking who is the greatest when we're all absolutely dependent on the saving work of Jesus Christ to save us from our sins? It's just as silly as that example that I just brought up. The only reason any of us have any hope for eternal life this morning is because Jesus went in my place to the cross, bore the burden that I ought to have borne so that I didn't have to, paying the debt I could not possibly pay. You see the opposite of people boasting in their greatness when you open up the scriptures. The scriptures do not applaud man's greatness, but the greatness of our God and the greatness of his grace towards his people. A theme that you might be tracking with us as we've been journeying through the scriptures. But sadly, many people miss this. They miss this mark, this warning away from pride and the warning that it's not about our greatness but Christ's, and trusting in his grace, not in our good works or our own talents and abilities. Sadly, even pastors ask this question, whether they realize it or not. Not always out loud, but sometimes in their hearts. Who's the greatest pastor in town? (laughs) We want to be greater than the Methodist church down the street. Bigger numbers, bigger influence, or have a bigger reputation in their community. And rather than being rebuked for their pride, these pastors are viewed as visionaries. Look at the great visions this pastor has for this church. A.W. Tozer saw this trend back in his day. And it's only gotten worse since then when he said, promoting yourself under the guise of promoting Christ is currently so common in this age to excite little notice. This idea of, oh, I'm actually promoting Christ, but I'm really promoting myself. 
That's the danger of pride. Which is the same thing that will cause the disciples to say things like, Oh, who is the greatest? And the trick to safeguarding a church from this, a pastor from this, and dare I say our own individual hearts from this same thing, is remembering whose kingdom it is that we're building here. It's not mine. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not even this church's. Or it doesn't matter what name we put on the door. The name that we're building is Jesus Christ. That's the kingdom that we desire to build. You know, we've had a lot of meetings amongst the leadership here at this church. We've had a lot of meetings in the session, and we've, we've been in agreement for a while now. We just want to see this church outlast us all. Not about building any one of our names, but about building the name of Jesus in and through this place. We just want to be the faithful light to the city of South Amboy that just needs it so badly. Not that it needs us so badly. Not that it needs me so badly. But we can clearly see this city needs God's word. And it needs the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus wanted to show them what true greatness looks like. And he gave them the example that is fit for his community in verse 2, where it says, In calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I love that Jesus purposely didn't take a philosopher from their midst in the Greco-Roman culture that they were in and say, you know, be like this person in their wisdom. Nor did he take a politician and say, you must be like them in their power. Or a soldier to be like them in their strength. But Jesus chose a child and said, this is what you must turn and become like to enter my kingdom, and to be the greatest in the kingdom. This is what greatness looks like. A child, though. It's a surprising imagery. It's literally the opposite of what you would expect, as is what most of God's kingdom looks like. See, here's the beauty of it. Contrast that to the pride that we just talked about. Children know they need someone to take care of them. I know they, they proudfully boast too from time to time and they say things that they don't mean, but they know they're, they're dependent. They, they know that, they intuitively know that they are not safe and will not last long without an adult taking care of them. They know that. They fear that deep down, even as they kick and scream and make all kinds of noise about it. But the truth is, that's what they know intuitively. And that is exactly how we must view our relationship with God as utterly dependent children upon our Father. So we must shed our pride, our self-sufficiency, this proud boasting of who is the greatest, and realize we are but little children who never grow out of our dependency of our Heavenly Father. Moreover, children trust their parents intuitively and are honest, well, for the most part. 
for the most part. Let me tell you, I've spent many years involved in children's ministry, and they are the most honest and most unhypocritical group you guys could possibly minister to. To a fault. (laughs) To a fault. Uh, Their questions are genuine. When they ask you a question, they mean it. Their their worship is genuine. They're not just going to throw up their hands and praise the Lord and put on a show for the rest of the room. No, if they're worshiping God and they're emotional about it, it's genuine and it is beautiful. And their feedback is regretfully honest. If I'm not doing a good job teaching them, they're going to let me know. If I'm making them bored, they're going to let me know. (laughs) And that's one way I think that the church as a whole can do better. In this honesty, in this genuineness in our worship, in in this God-facing worship, rather than how we have this tendency to look around sometimes before we are more expressive in our worship. Or even in our feedback with one another. You know, I've had people, there's people that will come up to you after the service and shake your hand and smile and say, oh, that was a good sermon, Pastor. I appreciated what you said. But in reality, they're offended and they're never coming back. That's not healthy. But my point is just imagine how beautiful the church's potential can be if we shed this facade of what our individual legacy is and we just get wrapped up in the worship of our God and we just so focus on him and just out of a desire to see Jesus lifted high in everything that we do how beautiful it could be and Jesus cautions us here that unless we turn and become like those children and repent is very much implied in in the language here we will not even enter the kingdom of heaven because the gospel is intrinsically tied to this imagery of coming to Jesus with that absolute dependency that we we aren't in need of just a little bit of extra help to make ourselves presentable. We need him from the ground up. We need everything from him, as we'll talk about a little bit. The gospel is simply to come to Jesus as a child. And in that childlike, simple faith. And to welcome a person who humbles themselves and forsakes their own righteousness, trusting in Jesus the the way a parent their child. Jesus says he will do the same to those he is received by in verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whatever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. You know, when Jesus confronted Saul for persecuting the church in Acts chapter 9, He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my church? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He said, why are you persecuting me? Jesus deeply identifies with his people. 
There's this beautiful and mysterious union where there seems to be no separation between Jesus and his church. Where if you're messing with God's people, you're messing with God. It's fascinating how this is. And many people do not understand who they're picking on when they pick on Christians. Frankly, even Western Christians, and largely ourselves, we have a skewed view of who Jesus is. Yes, Jesus, meek and mild, yes to the sinner, but not to the person persecuting the church. I wouldn't want to encounter Jesus the way he is phrasing what he just said here, <laughs> saying it would be better to have a millstone, which easily weighed hundreds of pounds, be fastened around your neck and thrown into the depths of the sea. Oh, you'd be better off for that to happen than to fall into the hands of God after persecuting his church or his little ones. Do you hear the, the, the love and protection, the love of a father expressed here as Jesus is expressing this towards his people? Just wanting these little ones who believe in him to be protected from all the craziness of the world. So whether today, if that's the sin of false religions or false religious systems like legalism, trusting in our own works righteousness to save us, or various forms of idolatry, or enticing believers into sin with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, someday those who who do so will stand before Jesus someday. And have to account for that, which is essentially what verse 7 goes on to say, saying, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Now, this is just a reminder that this world is not getting off scot free for its sins, for the wickedness that we see in our culture. There's a day where these accounts are going to be reconciled. And, you know, as I look into this world today, you know, I see this world that's tempting to confuse these little ones. I can't help but to see the imagery of the next generation coming up as I read this passage talking about children. Yes, I know it's in context talking about those who humble themselves as a little child, but how much more so my little children? who also believe, in, also believe in him. And I see this world that is attempting to confuse my daughters right down to who they are. What every cell in their body is, what is appropriate, what is shameful. Dare I say, who can they, they can marry? All these things this world is trying to confuse them on. And one day the people who do so, they're going to have to account to somebody. Somebody far worse than even me. (laughs) But with with this idea of justice, you know, people, I I find it shocking that people object to Christianity and become atheists because of all the evil and injustice in our world today. I'm sure you've heard people say that. But they fail to recognize how much worse what they have abandoned Christianity for is with their answers to these problems. You reject Christianity because of evil and injustice, so you embrace a worldview where they say there's no such thing as evil and provides no justice in an ultimate sense. 
think through critically about this. Dawkins himself, the famous atheist, once said that there's no such thing as good or, or evil. We're all just dancing to our DNA. So again, you're going to reject Christianity because of the evil in the world and then say there's no evil in the world? Hold on. Hold on. I think that the very evidence that there is good and evil in this world that can be so clearly identified shows there is a moral lawgiver out there. There is a God who has shown us the right way and we're just rebelling against it in our sin. And furthermore, without an all-powerful God, there can be no ultimate justice or any guarantee that justice will ever be served. Again, take atheism. What's, what guarantee do, do, does the atheist have that everything's going to somehow be all right? What promise do they have that you know, all things are going to work together for good? Or that there's going to be a day of a day of justice or a day or a, a place of peace free from suffering. They can't offer that. Jesus Christ alone offers the solution to the evil we see in the world and in our own hearts. That all sins will be judged either in hell or on Jesus' own body on the cross. But sin, evil, wickedness, it's all It's all taken care of. It's all accounted for here. And we end with a familiar exhortation to all of us of the call to avoid sins. All of us together in verse 8. That tells us, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better that you enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin... Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now we largely covered this almost exact quote back when we were in Matthew chapter 5. It's still available on the website if you want to check it out. So I'm not going to re-preach that message. But simply put, does your hand, foot, or eye cause you to sin? I think clearly the answer biblically is no. (laughs) A humorous example, but true nevertheless, is that a blind quadriplegic is just as much of a sinner as we are. Now, I might have a great deal of compassion on that person, but the problem is our hearts, not our outer appendages. The problem's in the heart. Our hands, our eyes, our feet, what they're, on, they're only capable of expressing the attitude in our hearts. And if sin is in our hearts and we commit murder, we steal, we, we sin in all number of ways, that's just merely ex- the expression of our hearts coming out through our hands and our feet and our eyes. They don't cause us to sin, that's just the expression of it. People ask then, well, how how can I then be free from my sin if I can't just do an amputation? (laughs) How do I be free of this? I've been struggling with this sin or that sin for many years. How do I find freedom from this? And well, I think the answer begins with this question. Do you hate your sin? Or do you still kind of cherish it? 
Do you still love it? Do you hate gossip, for instance? Do you hate the damage that it does to people's reputations and the slander that it causes? Do you hate that? Or do you still kind of love that feeling of sharing something you really ought not to be sharing? Do you love that feeling that it gives you? Because if you love it, you're not going to flee from it. Unless you hate it, you're going to keep doing it. Likewise, do you hate lying? Do you hate anger? Do you hate your sinful lust? Whichever one it is for you, do you hate it? Do you hate what it does to, to you, to your relationship with God, to your relationship with others? Whatever, whatever it is, if you don't renounce out of hate for what it is, you're going to continue to do it. So stop loving whatever temporary pleasure you're getting it and start viewing it the way Jesus did. Not just hate, and not just hate what it was. Because hate's not enough, to, not enough of a motivator. We also have to love something much more greatly. Do we love our God? Do we truly love the Lord Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength as he calls us to do so? Because as we embrace his love and as we love him more and as we see the, the, the horror that our sins are capable of doing and recognizing that that's what sent our Savior whom we love to the cross, whatever sin it is that we struggle with as individuals becomes a lot more ugly when we view it for what it is. We find it much more easy to walk with him and follow his ways, when we start viewing our sins the way Jesus does, and we view Jesus the way he deserves to be viewed. So as we pull all this together, we're reminded that holiness, you know, the pursuit of, the pursuit of this sanctified life, it's not the pursuit of improving yourself, but being born again, as Jesus said, and allowing him to completely transform our natures. In Ezekiel 36, we are offered a new heart, the very thing that all this evil in us comes from. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, He who is in Christ is a new creation. That's good news. We're not who we used to be if we are in Christ. And all of this is in according to the new covenant of grace in Christ's blood that 1 Corinthians 11.25 promises. So as we look at these verses and we see the whole picture coming together, my friends, drastic times call for drastic measures. (laughs) The imagery here isn't for Jesus to renovate who we are. But the image the Bible uses is much closer to just tearing down the whole structure and allowing him to rebuild us from the ground up. But the good news is that he also offers to do the work that it's by his spirit that we live our Christian life, not in our, the strength of our own flesh, but by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, helping us to live this sanctified life. Our job is simply to allow him to do the work, allow him to do this work that he has begun in us. To simply turn to him like little children and allow him to take out the permits, if you will. Torture that analogy. 
Only then can we begin to be the community that Jesus has called us to be. So whether if we've ever done so completely in our hearts or whether we just haven't turned all the way, turn to him today in every area of your life, trusting in what Jesus did on the cross for you in total dependence as a little child does. And you too can experience the absolute grace that he offers each one of us to cover every sin we have ever committed. Thanks be to God. Amen.